Nehemiah chapter 11. We'll be reading Nehemiah chapter 11, 1 through 36. And I'm going to do something that I didn't do last time, and I was debating about it even this morning, like a couple minutes ago. Uh, I, I, last time I read through chapter 10, I didn't read all the names. I'm going to read all the names today, so hang in there. I'm hanging there through all the names. Some people don't like it when I read all the names. Some people love it when I skip them. Um, so, but the reason I want to read all the names is because I want to show you just how ordinary all of the people in this passage are and let the really ordinary nature of the people in this passage affect you because the whole idea of this passage is how God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary mission. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 11 together and let's do our best to focus, hang in there, and we will read the passage. This is God's holy inspired word. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem, of certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin, of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, and the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, oh, however you pronounce that name, of the sons of Perez, Maasiah, the son of Baruch, son of Colhose, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joiarib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite. And all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joed, son of Padiah, son of Coliah, son of Messiah, son of Ethiel, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikiri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanua, was the second over the city. Of the priests, Jediah, the son of Joab, Joarib, Jakin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Mushalum, son of Zadok, son of Marioth son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822, and Adiah, son of Jeroham, son of Palaliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, hang in there, son of Pashur, son of Malchiah, and his brothers, heads of father's houses, 242, Amishai, son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshilamoth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadilum, and of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, the son of Azrakam, the son of Hashabiah, son of Buni, and Shabbatai, and Jazabed, of the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the house of the work of the God, and Mataniah, son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. And Babukiah, the second among his brothers, and Abda, the son of Shemua, son of Galal, son of Jaduthan. All the Levites in the city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talmon, and their brothers who kept watch at the gates were 172. And the rest of Israel and the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, every one in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived on Ophel, and Ziha and Gisha were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers over the work of the house of God. 
for there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pedathiah, the son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people lived in Judah, lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Debon and its villages, and Jekabzeel and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Moladah, and Beth Pelet, and in Hazar Shual, and Beersheba, and its villages, and Ziklag, and Mekona, and its villages, and in Rimon, and Zora, and Jarmuth, Zenoah, Adullam, and their villages, Lachish, and its fields, Azekah, and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward. At Michmash, Aya, Bethel, and his villages, Anathoth, Nob, Aniah, Hazor, Ramah, Getaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nebalat, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of the Craftsman. As certain divisions of the Levites lived in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. Okay, we're done. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for every bit of your word, even the very difficult names to pronounce. Because, God, we thank you that you put all of these names there. Thank you, God, that all of those names, although they are already forgotten by most of us, are never forgotten by you. Thank you, God, that these are very ordinary people that you used to carry out your extraordinary mission. God, thank you that you used ordinary people then and that you use ordinary people like us who flub pronouncing names. And God, you use us in your extraordinary mission to bring people into your place, to proclaim your name, to declare your good news. God, I pray for this morning that you would help each and every one of us be attentive to your word, that you would fill me with your spirit as I preach, you would fill all of us with your spirit as we hear from you. God, give us your grace to hear from you. Keep us attentive and alert to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when I was four years old, I had a pastor in the Lutheran church who went to St. Luke's Lutheran Church. I don't know what's wrong with my mouth this morning. I can't pronounce things, but even the name Luke eludes me. But St. Luke's Lutheran Church, and his name was Pastor Ray Shaheen. And I still remember he came down to the little Sunday school where we were, and he talked to all of us four-year-olds, and he shared the good news of the gospel about Jesus Christ. I don't remember exactly what he said. I don't remember how he said it. I don't remember the details. I don't really remember anything else about him except for he wore a robe and then when they walked into the sanctuary, they created this big thing with smoke on it and they waved it around and I never knew what that was all about but I thought the smoke was really cool. He was an ordinary guy, a very, very ordinary guy. But what he shared was extraordinary for me. God used that encounter with the good news of the gospel to give me joy, to give me hope. And I remember, I remember thinking about just that ordinary setting of me in the Sunday school class and this guy coming in and sharing the gospel. And I remember having hope and joy even as a young boy. I remember wanting to read God's word. I remember when I first could start to read and I got my first Bible and I read all through the book of Ephesians and Galatians and then I highlighted the entire book of Galatians and I still have this, this old Bible and open up and I'm like, what in the world was I thinking? The whole, the whole book of Galatians is highlighted. I, I was excited about God. I was excited about his word and he used an ordinary person to inspire me to follow him. You know, God uses ordinary people all the time. 
My dad is very ordinary. He is a blue-collar guy. He had a blue-collar job. But one of the ways that God used my dad was in a very ordinary way. You see, my dad, he got up and he would travel about an hour and a half each way to commute downtown to D.C. to a construction job. And I, we lived about 70 miles out in Virginia. And he would commute. He'd get up at 4.30 in the morning so he could be at the job site by 6, 6.30 in the morning. And he could be back late at night. And typically he couldn't get to bed till like 10 o'clock at night. So he was not getting very much sleep. But I remember something about it, how God used his ordinary blue-collar labor to teach me some things about, about what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. You see, my dad, I don't ever remember him complaining. If it was me, I would have complained. I would have complained about my job. I would have complained about having to drive three hours a day. I would have complained about so many things, about being out in the elements. And yet, I remember him making it clear the reason he was doing this is not because he really loved being away from us. It's because he loved serving us. He loved providing for us. Because that's what Christian men do. They provide. They care for their families. He taught a Christian work ethic. And he taught the, the, the model of... Not complaining, but doing everything, even hard things, joyfully and as unto the Lord. My dad was very ordinary. He still is very ordinary. I still remember visiting a little church plant in Virginia Beach and a bunch of ordinary people there. There were like 50 people in this hotel boardroom and they, they, they didn't have a very great band. They didn't preach a very great message, but something that really affected me was the people there, they loved God, they were passionate about him, and they weren't afraid to talk about the areas in their life that they needed to grow and sin because they were really aware of God's grace. And the other weird thing for me at the time was that they were passionate about studying God's word and doctrine, and yet they were passionate in worship and exuberant. I'd never experienced all those things together, and it really affected me. I don't remember any of their names of the people in the church. I, I remember the guy who was leading at the time and, and my friend who was in the band. That, and that's it. I don't remember anybody else in the church. But I was deeply affected by these ordinary people worshiping God. They were living for him and they're trying to live for him in the day-to-day of life and they were being real and authentic. And they, they made me want a church like theirs back in, when I moved to Fairfax. And, and I remember calling up my friend and saying, hey, is there a church like yours somewhere up here? Because I've not found that yet. I want, I want authentic people who are passionate about God's word and passionate about worship. And I just want ordinary people who are living for the extraordinary. And then I found a church in Fairfax. And then I was, I was there in that church and there was this older guy. Anybody here ever hear of a man named Chris Ludic? One person, see? An ordinary dude, just an ordinary guy. He's just an ordinary guy, and he's, I think, a computer programmer now. He was a pastor back then, but he's just an ordinary guy. And, and God used him meeting with me at Denny's and having really terrible breakfast food. It was, it was really bad back then. Maybe Denny's has gotten better. I don't know. But I know it's the South Carolina. It started in South Carolina. But now it, 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 we had really horrible food, and we had great conversation. And God used that ordinary means of breakfast at like 5.30 in the morning to transform my life. Let me ask you, do you remember who preached the gospel to you? Anybody remember the name of the person who preached the gospel to you? Do you remember your, your very first, if you, if you grew up in the church, the name of your first Sunday school teacher, what they looked like or what their job was? You know, some of the most instrumental people in our lives are some of the most ordinary people. 
some of the very most ordinary people. The person who God used to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you is of extreme significance to you personally, even if you don't have any recollection of who they were, and even if you don't like them now. Because that happens sometimes. God uses some weird people to share the gospel. It's wonderful. Why? Because there's hope for me. There's hope for you. He uses ordinary people to do an extraordinary work. How about you? Who in your life has served as an example of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You know, who has modeled what it looks like to be a Christian teen, a Christian single, a Christian husband or wife? Who who has modeled for you what it looks like to follow God? You know, I doubt it was superstars because they're, they're really not good models for us. We, we need somebody who's just living an ordinary life so we can see what does it look like for us to live an ordinary life for Jesus too. You know, how about your life? Who, who, who has made a big difference in your life? God uses all kinds of ordinary people. That's, that's why I read that huge list. I, you know, I don't know anybody who's ever thought, you know what, uh, Akub, he's my hero, you know? Somebody's like, who's your biblical hero in the Bible? Metalafaya, whatever the guy's name was. That's, that's it for me. You know, I gotta, I gotta look at some of the other names here. Was it Meshezebel? Yeah, that's him. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking, Meshezebel. And maybe it was Hazor or Ma or whatever. Those are towns, I guess. You, you know, seldom do we think of the ordinary people in the Bible that are extremely significant and extremely important to the work of God. You know, you might not think of yourself as being significant and important to the person beside you as being significant and important, but God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary mission. That's really the main idea from this morning is that that God uses our ordinary lives to accomplish his extraordinary mission. And you need to know that. You need to embrace that. And you need to actually have a vision for that, that God uses our ordinary lives. And some of us, our lives are very ordinary, you know, we, we, we get up pretty much the same time every day or close to it. And, you know, if you don't hit the snooze button too many times, which is also ordinary. And we go to the same ordinary jobs and we have the same ordinary families. We eat the same ordinary foods and we come home and then we do it all over again from week to week, day to day, month to month, year to year. And yet that's the process. That's the kind of lives that God uses to carry out his extraordinary mission, to reach people, to proclaim his name, to bring people into his kingdom. Don't go waiting for the extraordinary to happen. Look for God to use you in the ordinary life that you're living day by day. We see ordinary lives being accomplished to used to accomplish God's extraordinary mission in these verses. And, and really one of the first principles we're gonna glean is right in the very first verse. It, it's that, that we see ordinary people are needed for God's mission. Ordinary people are needed for God's mission. You know, back in, in Nehemiah 7, 4, it says the city was wide and large. They had just finished building the whole city. They had finished the first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah are, are all about building the city. And then in chapter 7 through chapter 12, it's about rebuilding God's people and bringing them back into God's place. So taking God's people, bringing them back to God's place. The parallel for us today is God's people being brought into God's kingdom through the church. And, and yet the city was empty. They needed people. 
you know, let me ask you, what would be the point of rebuilding a city if there was nobody living in it? You know, what's the, what's the point of, of God bringing people and establishing these walls and building this city in a place where they could be gathered to worship him if nobody gathered? What would be a point of a church that no one was a part of where people didn't come regularly? It's important that you're here. If the city wasn't popular, it'd be easy for the enemy to defeat it. If people aren't a part of the church, it's hard for the church to carry out its mission. If, if no one lived in Jerusalem, no one would ever fulfill the purpose for which it was rebuilt. Nehemiah and the leaders, we see at the very beginning of the chapter, he says they lived in Jerusalem and they were necessary. But let me tell you, if it was just Nehemiah and the leaders there, they would have no one to lead. They would have nothing to do. The roles would have been unnecessary and completely useless. They couldn't have gotten anything done without ordinary people to carry out God's mission. God's mission of exalting his name and bringing a people to himself. And you know that's God's mission today is that God is all about exalting his name, bringing a people to himself, bringing people out of captivity, out of darkness, bringing people to know him. But you know what? It takes ordinary people. And the good news is that God uses the ordinary people that are needed for God's mission to be carried out. The only problem is we see in the very beginning is that some of these people had to make a drastic change. You see, um, the, most of the exiles had come back probably close to 100 years before. They'd come back into the land, and, and Nehemiah might have brought a few, but most of the exiles were already there, but they weren't living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in ruins. It was a rubble, and most of the people, they lived on farms or, or the equivalent of it back then. They lived out in the countryside, and Nehemiah had to convince them to come back in and to, to work on the city. He had to convince them to come and work on the city of Jerusalem. But nobody wanted to move. They'd probably been about 100 years. And imagine that if, you, if your family had lived in an area for 100 years and they got used to farming or agriculture and, and, and they got used to the lifestyle and the big open spaces and they had family and friends around them and they they had comfort and then Nehemiah comes and he says hey by the way we don't just want you to rebuild the city we want you to make some changes to your life for the purpose of God's mission we want you to change your entire lifestyle we want you to change where you live and how you live and what you do and how you do it because by the way your whole identity is not about being a farmer but your whole identity is about being God's people and the whole reason for you as God's people is so that you can carry out God's purpose and God's mission. But you're going to have to make some major changes. I don't know about you, but if I was living on a farm, I'd be like, yeah, I'll pass, Nehemiah. But the people didn't do that. The people didn't do that. It would have been a huge culture shock. I remember we were living our very first apartment in Fairfax, Virginia. It was it was not a very nice place. It was the cheapest place in town, and with that goes a lot of things, right? And so it was the cheapest place in town, so it had some pests that dwelled with us. You know, it had, it had roaches. It had all kinds of issues. It, our, our heat was always too hot in the winter and too hot in the summer because the boiler room was right underneath of our apartment. It wasn't a nice place, but we, we had people coming and going all the time, and one of our neighbors, they moved in, and they didn't speak any English. Now, I don't mean like they, they spoke broken English. I mean they spoke no English. The first time they had heard the English language was about a week or two prior to moving to the country. 
It was a major culture shock. They had gone from, they were Kurdish refugees who were living in northern Iraq and they had gone from being nomads living in tents and having wide open free spaces to having to live in a confined 800 square foot apartment with like eight people at least. It seemed like more in this little apartment. And it was a major shock. They used, to, they used to come in behind us when we'd walk in the door if we didn't lock the door behind us. It was, it was a little disconcerting. They, they, they didn't mean anything by it, but they were used to this communal living. And so Julie would bring the groceries in, set them on the counter and turn around. There was a little kid behind her. She's like, oh, hello. And they didn't speak any English, so it was a little awkward. And uh, kind of ushering them out, you know. And um, I remember having a small group there. We had 30 or 40 college students crammed in our, in our little 400 square foot living room. We have, they're crammed in there, in our, the, the whole living area. And, and they walked in, in the middle of our meeting and they just started speaking Kurdish. I don't, I don't understand Kurdish. Not many people do. And they started just kind of miming and we were all just like looking around like what's going on here? There were some major cultural differences. It was a big shock for them to relocate. Now they did it because they understood who they were and they understood that they wanted freedom and they, they wanted to live in a place where they could thrive. It would have been just as big of a culture shock for exiles living for 100 years in the areas around Jerusalem and they build this city and then all of a sudden they have to move into a city that wasn't clean. It wasn't a great place to be. Yes, they rebuilt the walls, but not all the homes were, were rebuilt and established. And the city of Jerusalem was not the greatest place to be. They didn't have running water back then. They didn't have all the conveniences. They might not have had space. And so they would have had to change everything about the way that they lived. But they knew who they were as God's people. And their identity as God's people drove them to be willing to make changes because they were living not for themselves, but they were living for God's purposes. And so they were willing to make some major shifts. Do you know who you are? If you're a Christian, do you know that your entire identity surrounds the idea of being a follower of Jesus Christ, of being one of God's people, of being his daughter, his son? Do you think about your identity that way? Does, that, does your identity shape where you are, what you do, how you do things? Does not only your identity, but does the purpose that God has called you, does that drive what you do? Does your identity and your purpose, does it drive, does it inform how you live, where you live, what you do, how you do it? You see, it's meant to. Because that's how God uses ordinary people who are identified as his people, living for his purpose, his mission, his kingdom. That's who God calls us to be. This is the place where God has set his name, the central place of worship, the most high God over all. Prior to the coming of the Messiah, God was working in and through his physical city of Jerusalem to draw people to himself, even though the city was still a mess. You know, like, unlike today, living in the city was not cool and hip. It wasn't cool and hip to live in Jerusalem. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to like draw lots to get 10, just 10% of the people to get there, right? It meant changing everything. It meant giving up things. It meant giving up land. It meant giving up their way of life. It meant either not tending your property or having to commute back to your property to tend the animals or the crops. It was potentially dangerous to identify as a resident of the city. And you also, as a resident of the city, you would have had to defend the city. And that meant something. That meant a pro- potential personal cost to you. 
It would have required sacrifice in many areas. They were devoting themselves, their lives to God though, and his worship. And more than that, they, they were devoting themselves to the purpose that he called them to over and above whatever they desired, over and above their comfort, potentially at the cost of their own safety and stability. So they made this plan, they cast lots, they committed to moving 10% of the population there, but notice it doesn't mention, and, and, and by the way it would in the Old Testament because God's people are frequently complaining, but notice it doesn't mention anything about any of them complaining. That's crazy. It really is crazy because if you look in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, normally, what do you hear? Genesis, or well, well, at least in Exodus and Leviticus, you, the people are constantly complaining and judges, they're constantly complaining, going their own way, doing what they wanted. But what you see here is because they know who they are now, because they've responded to God's word, they've been affected by the mercies of God, they have repented, they've been committing themselves to follow God. And now they're saying, you know what? Because we have a new identity and a new purpose, we're willing to do whatever it takes. You don't see anybody here complaining about it. They're giving themselves wholeheartedly to their identity and mission as God's people. And they trusted God enough to follow him through the drawing of lots. You don't, you don't see people saying, wait a minute, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with doing it this way. I don't agree with doing it that way. Or you know what? Hey, wait a minute, drawing of lots, that's not exactly fair. I like to do it another way. No, now on that day when they drew lots, that was one of the ways that they heard and discerned God's will. They knew that, you know, although it says the, the lot falls in the lap, it's, it's from the hand of God. That God was even over the most mundane things in life and they could trust God with even the drawing of lots. And so really what you see is them submitting their, their will, their desires to God's sovereign will. They were submitting their will, their desires, their comforts, their, their preferences to God's sovereign will. And, and they saw their identity as God's people so much that they said, you know what, whatever the lot is, we're going to go there. We're going to go there willingly. How do we respond when God leads us in a direction? How do we respond when there's a need for us to be engaged in the kingdom work, in the, in the mission of God? When God places us amidst a people in a place that's a mess, how do we respond? Do we willingly follow him and trust in him? Are we willing to make the changes to our lives that are needed in order to submit to him? Are we willing to live differently, be differently in response to the fact that he's given us a new identity and he's given us a new purpose? If we're a disciple of Jesus Christ, that very identity, that's why our mission as a church, be disciples who are growing disciples, making disciples. The reason why that's our mission as a church, because I think it's a biblical mission, is because our, our identity needs to shape everything that we do. If you see yourself as a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, a learner about Jesus, it should shape and change everything you do and how you do it, where you do it. If you're wanting to grow a disciple, that means you're gonna be part of a local church, you're gonna be devoted to that church, and you say, I wanna grow because God primarily enables us to grow through local church bodies, and you know what, I'm gonna devote myself to that, and then I'm gonna make disciples, I need to be a disciple, I need to make disciples both in the church, and also I need to be making disciples in my community, in my neighborhood. Will we willingly serve God's mission or will we live for ourselves? If you want to do great things for God, then willingly live for him in the ordinary things of life. God uses ordinary lives to accomplish his extraordinary mission. 
Ordinary people like you and me, we're, we're needed for God's mission. Don't discount that. Well, not only ordinary people needed for God's mission, ordinary living for God's mission is needed. We don't just need ordinary people, but we need ordinary people living ordinary lives for the mission of God. You see, their entire life got reshaped. The people who moved into Jerusalem, the people who lived there, their entire life changed, and they, now they were living for God's mission primarily. All of these people have all kinds of, of different things to do. And, and, you know, I was thinking through that and thinking all these names that I've never dwelt on and I probably will never remember, they're significant. And their boring lives as gatekeepers or whatever they were doing or as working on the outside of the temple or whatever those ordinary things were, they were very significant for the worship and mission of God. God didn't just build a city. God was building a city so that he could bring a people to himself and so that he could make his name great among the nations and draw all nations unto himself. It's an extraordinary rescue mission carried out through really ordinary living. You ever wondered if your life matters? You ever wonder if your life matters? You know, um, I'm in my mid to late 40s, depends on how you look at that. You know, something common that happens when you pass 40 is you begin to question, what in the world have I accomplished? What have I done? I've not done anything significant. And I don't know anybody who's ever felt differently, somewhere between 40 and 50, you get this feeling of like, have I really ever done anything significant? And the answer might be no. (laughs) It's not the answer you want to hear. But in one sense, the answer really is yes. If you've lived your life faithfully for God in ordinary living, you've done something significant. You've done something hugely significant. You want want to know if your life matters? Are you living for God's mission and his purpose? Are you faithfully trying to pursue God in your daily life? Are you faithfully trying to to live out what it means to be God's people and live out what it means to be on, on the mission for him? If so, then that's significant. You see, God uses ordinary living for God's mission and he blesses it. I was thinking about most of our lives. You know, most of my life is just really mundane, really ordinary. You know, 99% of your life is probably very mundane, very ordinary. Well, well, I mean, I don't want to presume that, but how many of you had something really spectacular happen this week, just spectacularly exciting and dramatic happen this week? Anybody? How many people? One, two, three, four, sweet, five, six. All right. How many of you had something dramatic happen every day of the week? All right, two people, that's great. How about every day of the month something spectacular happened every day of this month? All right, how about something spectacular happened every day of this year? How many people have had that? You know, how many of our days and our weeks and our years are are filled with spectacular things in the world's eyes? Well, I would say hardly any comparatively. But you know the kind of people and the kind of living that God uses most. God uses ordinary living to accomplish his mission. That's what we see with this huge list of people. Just living out ordinary lives, doing ordinary things. We're not sure, you know, in verse two, if the people willingly moved there were the same people who, whose names were drawn lots, but I think they were. 
I think the people whose names were drawn by lots were moving there willingly, and then it says all the people blessed them. Why? Because it's blessed to live for God's mission. If you were just living an ordinary life, they didn't do anything spectacular here. What did they do? They moved into the city. Now, there were some hardships. There were some sacrifices involved. They had to make changes to their life. It would have shaped how they lived, what they, what they lived for, how, what they did. But beyond that, they were just doing normal stuff, and yet all the people blessed them. You know, God uses ordinary living for his mission, and it's blessed. If you were just living your life in an ordinary way for the sake of God and his mission, then you're blessed. You know, they were, they were living for the purpose of God on his mission. They, they responded to the need. They responded to the drawing of lots, and they willingly went there. I was wondering, I was thinking through, am I, am I willing to make difficult choices to serve the Lord in my own life? Because you know, it's actually not easy. Every day you face a hundred or more different micro choices about who will I live for? Will I live with my identity in God or will I live for a different identity? Will I live as my purpose to live for God in all things? And that's a very New Testament thing as well. Or will I live as if my purpose is something else? Who, who am I living for? What am I living for? How do we respond? Are we willing to make difficult choices to serve the Lord in our lives in just the ordinary living? You know, I was thinking through our, our mission field as a church and, and rethinking our mission lately. And, and, and I would love it if we as a church, we could reach from, draw some lines. There's, it's not just arbitrary, but draw a line at say 85 and draw a line at somewhere around five forks and say, okay, that's our mission field primarily. Now, it's also wherever you, neighborhood you live in. And don't, don't feel excluded if you live outside of that. But we, we want to say, hey, let's, if we can reach this area and we can reach a whole, the whole upstate, Great. But we have a mission that God's called us to, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to make disciples. The world that we live in between 85 and 14 or wherever, way down at whatever Woodruff, if we reach everyone there with the gospel of Jesus Christ, wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't that be cool? If, if we could live out that mission but you know, it, it doesn't happen in all these big events and huge things. You know when it happens? It happens in a real way in, in the everyday. When we go into neighborhoods, or we go to the neighborhood pool and we talk to people there about Jesus. Or when we go into the grocery store, or when we go to our jobs or school, well, out of school right now, but whatever we're doing, if we're living for Jesus. Or maybe you talk to your neighbor about God and they start asking you questions because they notice you live differently and you have different priorities. And why do you have people over to your house so often? And, and boy, you, you know, you can say, well, I have hospitality. What, what do you mean hospitality? What in the world? And why do you have people? Why? Because I love people. Because God's loved me and I'm gonna show people the kindness of the Lord. And so it's in a hundred different ways we can live on the mission in ordinary ways that God has called us to. Think for a moment if each and every one here, not asking for 6,000 people to start living mission, but each and every person here, if every member of our church, 225, whatever many people we have, if every member of our church was living ordinary lives with your identity as a disciple and you're making disciples, 
You're living to be a part of his church, his people, and you were locking arms together with your small group, and you're saying, yep, let's get after this. Let's live and make the changes we need to make, and let's be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. I think it would, I think it would transform the area. We need people to move into God's kingdom work and join him on his mission. And those people, if you're doing that, are blessed in ordinary living. The kind of people that we would bless today are just like the kind of people who moved into the city back then. Those people who willingly use your gifts, your talents that you have for the sake of God's kingdom, for the sake of God's people. You know, maybe for us, we bless the people in children's ministry because there's not a lot of glory in being children's ministry helper. You know, maybe we would bless those people who are in our, our check-in desk, our safety team, those who serve in cleaning the building or administratively or the sound team, or the worship teams, the ushers, the greeters, the overhead projector people or those in the resource team or building maintenance or clean the building or people preparing for the potluck right now today that we're all gonna enjoy. Others who willingly use their gifts we could bless. Maybe those who host small groups or take meals to other people or have people into their homes who give rides or pray for people in need or, or people who say, you know what, I'm gonna restructure the way I live because I need to make disciples so I'm gonna meet with guys at 5.30 in the morning when it's really inconvenient even though I love sleep because I love Jesus more. People who give up time to go and disciple others, people who go to nursing homes and minister to the elderly, visit women's shelters, who deliberately, intentionally encourage and build each other up in Christ, those who go through the Bible with somebody else one-on-one, like some learned about in today's equip class. And by the way, if you didn't get to go there, I would encourage the whole church to be there. If every member could read the Bible one-on-one with somebody else who needs to grow in Christ or know Christ, boy, it would transform our mission fields. Because God's word is powerful, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, it's it's able to pierce into our souls. Those are the people who are blessed. We wanna bless those who are serving willingly in some form, whether it's seen or unseen. And the challenge is, is that most of us, it's difficult to live in the unseen. It's difficult. Because often we can tie our identity even to church work. It's kind of crazy, it's kind of perverted. But even in church work, and I'm saying this is a guy who gets up here and preaches, you know, I could tie my identity into what I do or to how I do it. Or if I thought like it was a good message that day or a crummy message that day or whatever, or I felt like I did a good job or a bad job and we can tie our identities there. Instead, we need to say, you know what? No, our identity is we're in Christ Jesus. We have something greater than they had. They got their identity as God's people and it was a little sketchy because it was based somewhat on their performance. For us, our identity is not based on our performance. Our identity is secure in Christ Jesus because he gives us his identity. And so because of that, we can freely live out our purpose. You know, ordinary living that God uses to carry out his mission, it it might not look extraordinary, but God uses ordinary mundane means of service. And sometimes it's messy and dirty. Sometimes you have to give things up to serve. You might have to risk losing the approval of others. The kind of ordinary living that God uses to carry his mission is when, when you do what you say to do, when you're faithful. He uses men who are loving and serving their wives. He 
use as parents who are caring for children, spending time to teach them the things of God in ordinary life. God uses people who just show up. You know, a lot of life is just showing up, being faithful. I'm glad you showed up here today. It's, it's God uses your ordinary means of being here to affect not only you, but other people here. Ordinary serving makes a difference. Ordinary routines in life. You know, if you want to do great things for God, don't wait for the great occasions. Serve God in the ordinary things of life. Don't wait for something spectacular to happen. It's not where we live. Don't underestimate or undersell how God might use you every day in the little things. And then be willing to move into the work of God for the sake of God's people and his worship. You know, I want this, I want this passage to affect us in a, in a way that we're thinking about where and how we might need to, to make some changes to live in God's kingdom, if you will. I don't mean physically moving necessarily, but if you're, if you're far away and you, you want to say, hey, what, this, is, this is our mission field, then let's think about it. Well, should we move into this mission field? I want some of you to be provoked, provoked that way. I'm not trying to put anything on anybody who lives outside of that area, by the way. But as you think about it, think, okay, wait a minute. I, I want to live for the sake of the kingdom. How can I do that? How can I be strategic about it? How, how can I make changes to my life to allow that to happen? You know, Jesus is the ultimate example. He moved, he relocated to be with God's people in God's place. He willingly gave of himself. He, he led the way in giving up his preferences and for the sake of God's kingdom. He willingly served God's people. He willingly gave himself to the utmost, even to the point of death on a cross. He did what was most uncomfortable. So we, may, we might come to know God and be brought into his kingdom so that we might be forgiven, we might be reconciled, we might be worshipers of God. The whole reason we can willingly move into whatever area is needed into God's kingdom is because Jesus gave himself so that we could be a part of his bride and his church. The church is gloriously mundane. It's the ordinary that God uses to accomplish the extraordinary. We aren't living for an earthly kingdom, an earthly city anymore now because Jesus gave himself for us. We live this eternal heavenly kingdom that both is, it's come and it's not fully yet here. We get to be a part of God's glorious plan to draw people to himself, to make disciples of Jesus so we can be conformed to the image of God. Do you understand your identity? Do you understand your purpose? Do you understand what you're living for? Are you willingly giving up what you need to give up? Are you willing to make changes to live for him? You know, we need to be a part of God's people and serving in God's redemptive purposes. I want to be a part of that. You know, I, I was thinking about this passage. I'm like, I, I'm so glad I'm a part of this local church because there are so many people here who want to live for Jesus in just their normal everyday lives. And I want everyone here to get excited about just ordinary living for Jesus that transforms things. We need every member of the church to do their part but it's a gloriously ordinary part that he uses to accomplish his extraordinary mission. Not only does he use ordinary people that are needed, he uses ordinary living, he also uses ordinary roles to carry out his mission. He uses ordinary roles, carry out the mission, the work of God's mission. Ordinary roles. You know, how many of you ever heard of 
uh, Bakbukaya before today, right? Anybody ever hear Bakbukaya before today? Remember that if you did? I'm sure I've read Nehemiah 11 before, but I don't remember Bakbukaya. You know, he, he was, and, and here's his role, okay? Here's his significant role. And it was significant enough, by the way, for God to write it down and keep it in history, to record it forever. And, and now he's honored. But Bakbukiah, here, here's how great his role was. He was the second among his brothers. Yeah, that's Bakbukiah's significant role. He was second among his brothers who were singers. And how about Akub and Talmon? You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up thinking, you know what? When I grow up, I'm gonna be like the gatekeepers of Kub and Talmud. I just can't wait to be a gatekeeper. I don't even know what a gatekeeper, what the modern equivalent would be today. Maybe it's a greeter, I don't know, or the safety team, I guess, maybe. <laughs> and by the way, we're grateful for greeters and safety team people, but you know, um, not everybody's thinking, you know what? I just can't wait to grow up so I can be a member of the church safety team. You know, that's, that's, we need it. We need those ordinary means of God's grace to carry out God's mission. But you know what? Nobody's thinking, hey, I want to go and clean the toilets of the church. I can't wait till I can grow up and do that. How about, in, you know, look, look in verse 24. Pethahiah, son of Meshezebel. Apparently he was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. But I, I don't know about you. I've never known that guy's name. He's an ordinary man carrying out God's mission by advising the king about the Israelites. Or about Meshilamoth. It says he was a mighty man of valor that God used, but otherwise an ordinary, unremarkable, unremembered, and I don't know what his role was. He was valiant, but we don't even know what he did. And most of the people here, we don't know what their jobs were. We don't know exactly what they did. But each and every one of them in their ordinary roles was important in carrying out the work of God's mission. Whatever God has called you to do, whatever ordinary role, whatever ordinary job, ordinary task you can do, put your hand to it because God will use that in an extraordinary way to bring about his mission. And you know who will remember you? Even if 2,000 years from now no one remembers your name, God will forever. Verses 3 to 23 details all the people who lived in the city of Jerusalem. It details all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. There's all kinds of people. There's chiefs, there's priests, Levites, temple servants, warriors, singers, musicians, gatekeepers, a lot of other people, probably at least somewhere between five and 10,000 people living in the city after this. And, and it lists three tribes. I'm not sure where the other tribes were, but it lists at least three of the prominent tribes, Judah and Benjamin and Levi. You know, all of them were there to support God's mission, his purpose. And you know what the primary purpose was? It was, it was to worship God. All thousands of these people, and you might think, that's a little overkill, isn't it? You know, do you need 5,000 people to come back in to serve the worship of God? Well, yes. Because there's a lot of ordinary roles for all those people. Some people were baking bread. Some people were singing. Some people were musicians. Some people were sitting at the gate all of them were there to support the worship of God in some way. God is all about bringing a people to worship him through the gospel being proclaimed, through him redeeming us, changing lives, and bringing people into his kingdom so that they can worship him. You get to be a part of that. Whatever ordinary role you think you have. Verse six, it says that 468 sons of Perez were valiant men. I don't know why. <laughs> they had some roles, but they were valiant men. And that implies that they were bold for, for God. That they stood up, they took risks for him. 
Verse 8 refers to 928 men of valor. Verse 14, the record refers to 128 men, mighty men of valor. They're probably valiant or valorous because they're willing to risk their lives, their safety for the sake of the kingdom. And, and they receive accolades from God, even though they we don't even know what they did. If, if no one remembers you, God will remember you. They, they weren't working to be known. They, they were working to make God known. They weren't working to be famous. They were working to make God's name famous. They, they, they weren't working to make their identity great. They were working to be identified as God's people on his mission. And he uses these ordinary people living in ordinary ways, carrying out administration, fighting when they needed to, serving the temple, protecting the church, protecting the, the kingdom, protecting the city, supporting worship, raising families, doing business, making changes in their lives, all in the context of living in Jerusalem. What are you giving yourself for? You know, bravely living for God today, it, it might look like not bowing down to the fear of man. It might look like standing up for the church, protecting the integrity of the church, protecting the gospel witness, living in a way that people might make fun of you, taking a stand for moral things, bravely living for God, not bowing is valiant. Will we livingly serve, willingly serve God's mission or will we give, live for ourselves? We want to do great things for God, willing to live for him, the ordinary things of daily life. It wasn't for their extraordinary acts. It wasn't for their awesome jobs, their huge accomplishments. They are on this list. And you know whose list this is? This is God's list of his people that he wants to honor. And they're going to be honored for all time for doing really ordinary roles, taking the trash out of the temple. And then there's a, the families here. I love that there's families because these families, they represent grandparents passing the word of God down to their children and parents, and great-grandparents passing the word of God down to their children. It represents ordinary living, ordinary people just doing ordinary things, telling people about God, telling their children about God, raising them up in the way they should go. You know, most people won't be remembered and most of us won't be heralded on the pages of history. You know, some of us might wrongly assume that fame or a name that everyone knows and will remember gives us worth and significance. But you know what it gives us worth and significance? Being found in Christ, having a righteousness that's not our own. That's the surpassing greatness. That our, our, our worth doesn't come from being well known. Our worth, our value, significance comes from being God's children and having his righteousness. You know, do you really want worldly worth, do you really want fame? Do you really want all your accomplishments to define you? You see, if we are defined by our accomplishments, then you're selling yourself short. I don't care who you are, how great your accomplishments are, what you've done, what you think you've accomplished, how great your obedience is, all of it falls far short of the glory of God. You know what we need? We need the identity of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to define us. That's, that's the worth that we need, is the righteousness of Christ that we need. We don't need to live for anything else. You see, all of our attempts at righteousness, they're worthless. And don't we really want the righteousness of God anyway? Let's stop seeking notoriety, be faithful in our ordinary lives. 
And if God grants notoriety to some, then my plea would be then use that for the glory of God, not your own glory. You know, there's, everybody's probably heard of a a man or most people have heard of a man named Dwight Moody. He was a very famous evangelist. And Dwight Moody, he led a guy named Wilbur Chapman to faith who was lesser known but known by a lot of people. And Wilbur Chapman used to lead these great evangelistic revivals after Moody was gone and, and he became this national evangelist and he, he trailed this gospel wagon down State Street in Chicago and as he was doing that, there was a Chicago White Stockings, this was that early, their, their name was the White Stockings back then, Chicago White Stockings player and he was leaning against an outside bar and this Chapman guy who had been brought to the Lord through Moody, he shares the gospel, this man becomes a believer He hears the gospel, he played baseball for two more years and then Billy Sunday, which is his name, he quit and then he serves in the YMCA. Chapman says, hey, would you you think about coming on these evangelistic crusades with me? And he says, sure, I'll do that. And then Chapman quit and so Billy Sunday started these evangelistic crusades, took over, traveled all across America and in his travels he he met this guy named Mordecai Ham, he shared the gospel with him, he became a Christian and, and then this guy becomes an evangelist especially in the south and in North Carolina and in, in, this, in South Carolina in this area and, and he invited a friend who came reluctantly and this friend invited another friend who came reluctantly and Billy Graham heard the gospel preached through Mordecai Ham. He obeys the gospel and and we know that Lots of people came to Christ through his ministry. And you think, well, that's really significant. But you know what the really significant part of it is? Is the guy who led D.L. Moody to the Lord. That's where the story began. The ordinary person. You know, the person that nobody's ever really heard of or doesn't really remember. It was, he, was a, he was working in a shoe store and he was a teenager and he was in the stock room and his Sunday school teacher said, you know what? I want to go and visit some of the teens that I've been ministering to, I want to go and visit them. He, he had a normal job and he said, I'm going to go and visit them. I'll see where they work and see what they do and talk to them and find out what are they living for. And so he goes and he finds Dwight Moody in the stock room of the shoe store and he shares the gospel with him and challenges him and said, what are you living for? And Dwight Moody got a new identity and a new purpose. All because of this guy named Edward Kimball, this insignificant ordinary guy just doing the really ordinary thing. What they did mattered to God. And he won't overlook it. I love in Hebrews 6, verse 10. I think we have it for you in the overhead. Hebrews 6, 10 says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know, according to Hebrews, how do we show our love for God? It's shown in serving the saints and continuing to do it daily. How can we be sure we inherit the promises of God? It's living by faith in God, patiently living for him every day, earnestly looking for our hope, upward call in Christ Jesus, and just our daily ordinary lives. Don't... Don't be confused. God's not so unjust to overlook your work and the love you showed for his sake. If you're living in the ordinary, your ordinary life, making changes, your ordinary role for his sake, God will not overlook you. You're on his list. Maybe you don't know where to start. If you're a believer, start by remembering who you are in Christ, your identity in him. 
Start by remembering what he's done for you. Recount his deliverance. Remember that you're God's people, his daughter, his son. Remember that he's brought you out of darkness and into his glorious light. He's brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. He's, he's made you new. He's given you something to live for. And then in light of your responsibility as his people, say, okay, well, God, how would you have me live? You're the church. You're the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. You have the opportunity to be a testimony to God's redeeming grace. And isn't that exciting? That he can do ordinary work, extraordinary work through our ordinary work. The question is, will we live for his kingdom and for his mission or will we live for ourselves? You want to do great things for God? Willing to live for him in the ordinary things of life. And if so, you'll be blessed. Amen? Let's pray.